Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Gendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, a Rakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Emily Brugman talks with K.M. Cromink about her novel A Treacherous Country, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations from Byron. I'm Emily Brugman and I'm delighted to be speaking today with debut author K.M. Cromink, whose novel A Treacherous Country won the 2020 Australian Vogels Literary Awards, one of Australia's most prestigious and lucrative awards for a writer under the age of 35. We would have been meeting today under the marquees at Byron Writers Festival in those beautiful green fields on a warm winter's day on the north coast, but unfortunately we can't be there in person, so our conversation is taking place remotely instead. I come to you from Mullumbimby and Kate from the Huon Valley in Tasmania. Kate and I actually met for the first time in May of this year when we were both shortlisted for the Vogels. Kate's excellent novel, A Treacherous Country, took out the award. Her book has been described as a cracking tale, warm and lively, wonderfully witty and fascinatingly odd. Today we're going to talk about that book. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Emily. It's lovely to be here. Kate, what is your book about? It's about a young man called Gabriel Fox who is sent to what was then Van Diemen's Land. It's in 1842. And he has to find a woman who was transported there 30 years earlier. So he has this very clear goal, but when he gets there, he he finds it really hard to focus on this goal. He gets swept along by events. He gets caught up in the world of shore-based whaling. And along the way, he finds himself reflecting more and more on what he left behind and the situation at home. And over the course of the book, comes to a realisation. Will you read us a passage? Sure. This is a passage starting on page 65 of the book, which is about one third of the way through. Although I knew it was not there, I looked for the North Star as I walked. Stars are not indifferent celestial bodies, after all, but symbols of all the values and qualities we little persons create for them. I suppose, at that moment, I wished for something constant. Yet all I had were the freezing vaults of the southern sky, silver, green and black and the moon a warm coin. Think you the moon is constant? Not at all. The moon is capricious and changeable as woman, my father would have said, but I do not like him and am not like him. And so I say, the moon is capricious and changeable as the economy. The trees had slowly lent in once more until little of the hills remained. Night's many limbs had unfolded and stretched and filled the spaces between the trees. I could see enough to put one foot in front of the other, but my cannibal loomed in my mind saying, over and over, you shall be eaten alive by the tiger wolf for one. I distracted myself from this terrible fate for a time by furnishing the forest around me with the old familiar trappings from home. I positioned Mama's red and gold striped chaise long by the way up ahead, leaves drifting down onto the silk. As I trudged past it, I said to myself, 
Well, I could rest myself here, but I have somewhere to be, so I shall continue on instead. With my mind's eye, I hung the dark portrait of Sir Edwin, my grandfather several times removed, upon a particularly large and gnarled tree, and put the hearth and mantelpiece from the library beneath it. However, this brought suddenly before me a vision of my father, positioned in his great armchair before that very hearth, where he was wont to rest and read and sip brandy in the evenings. The vision of my father gave me such a supercilious look, I left off my imaginings at once with a pang of shame. Great, thank you. Okay, let's begin with your protagonist, Gabriel Fox. He is a rather sweet but bumbling kind of a journeyman. Not long after arriving in Van Diemen's land, well-meaning but gullible Gabriel is quickly conned, swindled and led astray. He's tricked into buying a stolen horse and together the pair set out to search for Marianne McGinn. He's the classic unreliable narrator, isn't he? Tell us a little bit about where he comes from. Yeah, I think he is an unreliable narrator, um, not because he wants to deceive, but just because he understands so little himself that he's really reporting on what he observes with, without much understanding of it uh, behind that. So where he comes from, I think as I wrote more and more, I realised he was pretty much myself at the age of 25, you know, quite well-meaning, quite confused, um, very easily led and making a few poor choices, but still with that hope of coming to a point of greater maturity. He's often second-guessing himself in a way that endears him to the reader, I think. His horse, Tigris, takes more than one attempt to discover a trot, and I think we all know that Gabriel, too, is taking more than one attempt to find his feet in Van Diemen's land. He's kind of kooky and a little bit insecure. And I think we can all relate to those parts of Gabriel's character. Did you mind those parts of yourself to write those parts of him? Definitely, yeah. I was in pretty a vulnerable in a pretty vulnerable place when I was writing the book. Uh, my daughter was only a few months old, and I was absolutely exhausted. I was actually writing it as an exercise to sort of find my own sense of identity again. So I think those parts of myself were laid a bit bare, you know, those insecurities and so on, without the um, the defences of being completely in my right mind. So um, he he unfurled pretty easily, maybe worryingly easily from me, actually. <laughs> Gabriel finds himself at a declining whaling station. The whalers talk fondly of a time when they couldn't move for whale flesh, when they were swimming in black oil. But the whales seem to have disappeared. Where have the whales gone, and does this mirror the true history of whales in Tasmanian waters, Kate? Yes, it does. So the whaling industry, including the shore-based whaling industry, was a really, really booming trade in the early years of Van Diemen's Land. And of course, it was also a very destructive trade. Um, so the whales were nearly hunted out by the time that I'm writing the book, which is the early 1840s. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm telling myself a little fairy tale here, but I also like to think that maybe because they're such intelligent creatures, maybe they were also keeping themselves away. And just maybe in the past decade or so, they've become increasingly commonly seen in the waters of, um, especially the east coast of Tasmania. And that really sparked me to think about how long their memories are, you know, that, that only just now they're coming back. Hmm. Kate, soon Gabriel finds himself taking part in a whale hunt. 
How does the whale hunt affect Gabriel? I think it's the first thing that happens to him that provokes a really visceral reaction. There's something that happens in the hunt without giving too much away that that is quite shocking to him. And it's the first time where he's sort of pulled out of his fog. Um, I think maybe it's a little bit heavy-handed, but I've made quite a bit of use of fog in the book up till now. Um, he's looking at everything through this degree of, of remove. Um, so it, it creates this sense of urgency, a sense of peril for him. You know, this is real. He's really there. Was that a difficult scene to write? I did a lot of research. Um, I tend to research as I go when I'm writing. So I found myself looking at diagrams of rowing boats and sort of trying to position myself. Okay, so he's here, which is, you know, in relation to the other men, where is that? Which spatially I found quite difficult, actually. Um, and then, you know, I read a lot about the archaeology of whaling, about the, the kinds of materials they used, and I wanted to talk about them in a way that didn't feel like I was doing too much explanation, but also wasn't too obtuse. Um, but really my sympathies were with the whale. And did you read Moby Dick in preparation for this novel? I have read Moby Dick, but not in preparation for this book. Um, I've read it quite a long time ago when I was sort of at the age when it felt really important that I read all the important books, um, which I don't do as much anymore. But I, I liked it. I thought it was great. What is the significance of the paper lantern at Monsterat Whaling Station to Gabriel Fox? When Gabriel first sees it, um, it's like a little, I guess it's a literal beacon of hope for him, and he doesn't know what it is. He thinks maybe it's some strange celestial body that's specific to, to Van Diemen's Land that he hasn't seen before. And he comes to realise that it's a balloon, um, which is made by the station master's wife, Mrs Heron, who's someone that he develops a connection with and finds some comfort in. And when he looks at the balloon, he realises that, realizes that it's made out of old letters that um, with her friend, Tam, she's cut and pasted together into a sphere to make a balloon. So seeing the letters there, he sees some little fragments of the text, um, just little ordinary intimacies, and it brings to mind his mother and the letters that she would write him and the diaries that she used to keep. And it's around this point, around the whaling station, that his memories of home really intensify and it starts to be revealed that what he's left behind is, is more important to him personally than what's going on in front of him. Kate, how did this book reveal itself to you? Were you aware of... Gabriel's realisations and the way the narrative would unfold at the outset? No, it, I mean, I had some idea, but it really did unfold quite organically. Um, when I started writing it, I started it specifically to enter it into the vocal because, like I said, I was in a bit of a, an exhausted state with my little daughter and I really needed a project to focus on. And I had a look at an older manuscript I'd been writing, which was set, it was actually the story of Marianne McGinn, um, who's the woman he's looking for throughout the book. And I found it too difficult, too personal. Um, she experiences some, some very sort of gendered um, trauma, and I just wasn't in the place to write about that. So I found this little side character in there 
um, which was an Englishman who was come to buy a whale whaling station and, and it looked like it wasn't going to be a very good purchase. And so I sort of thought, well, that could be interesting. So I brought him out and and as I wrote him, he became younger um, and more confused and less certain. Um, and really it unfolded as I went. The book, I think, is also about family and marriage and the role of women. We learn early on that Gabriel is grappling with something that has come to pass within his family back home in England. What's happened in the Fox household? So he is the youngest son. Gabriel is the youngest son of an old family. His father is a baronet, which is sort of minor aristocracy, but um, has been for a long time. And so they've got a lot of pride in themselves. And his father is very domineering. His mother is unhappy, um, and she has experienced a bit of fall from a bit of a fall from grace from society, which was pretty much the whole fabric of her days. So she's not really included in her own world anymore, and she makes what what Gabriel's father, her husband, considers a scene at Christmas dinner in front of some guests, where basically she just says that she's unhappy and that she doesn't like her husband, which all seems fair enough to me. But um, in response, he shuts her in the attic, um, which is engaging with a very familiar trope of the mad woman in the attic, seen most famously in Jane Eyre. But um, it was something that happened, um, and it was often seen as a kindness because the alternative might be something much worse. It might be Bedlam, for example. So his father... um, is able to perform this cruelty under the guise of doing the right thing. And Gabriel knows it's wrong, but also he's left. He's gone away. And Gabriel is quite keen on marrying this girl named Susanna, who is back in England. It's quite clear to the reader that she is not interested, but Gabriel is unable to see that or unwilling to see that. It's not until he speaks with some of the women from Van Diemen's Land that he comes to have some insight. What did you want to say about marriage in the novel, Kate? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think Gabriel, even though I think he's a good person, he is very much a product of of his family and his position. And And he tells himself these stories. So he has an idea of how it's all supposed to go. He's in love with this girl, so she should be in love with him and they should get married and live happily ever after. I was actually inspired for this story by um, a book I have, which is called For Women. It was written in, I think, 1926, so quite a bit later than the book is set, but still very much closer to that society than our society now. And it's it's Tasmanian. It was written by a Tasmanian uh, general practitioner, um, as the title suggests, For Women. Um, And it's very much a product of its time. There is some good in there. There is some quite frank sex education, but most of it, I think, is probably quite harmful. And one of the things that, or maybe not harmful, but but very much engaging with with the um, culture of the day. About marriage, one of the things he says is that a young woman has to be very careful uh, in who she chooses because she is surrendering her her pride and her dignity to him. And it made me realise what a serious question that was 
um, you know, will you marry me? Because it wasn't just as it is today, you know, will you be my partner in life? It was, will you give me your body and all your money and all your prospects for the future and just trust blindly in me with no hope of getting out of it unless one of us dies? And I think Gabriel had to come to realise that he didn't have the right to insist. If Susanna said no, then she deserved to say no. Mm. It doesn't sound like a very good deal when you put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Kate, that has me thinking about those little gems that we might come across when we're writing or researching that make their way into the work. What other books influenced you in the writing of this novel? It was more articles, really. Um, I was reading a lot of articles from places like JSTOR um, on aspects of history, culture, um, again, the archaeology of whaling. But I'm, of course, I've always been an avid reader, so it's hard to pinpoint which specific books influenced me. But obviously classics like Jane Eyre, um, which is a really good book um, and the contemporary authors that I admire are ones who have a bit of a sense of the strange and a bit of a sense of mystery about them. In her review of your book for the Australian Book Review, Nicole Abadie describes your writing as precise and evocative. During Gabriel's journey, ringlets of fog like girls hair were emerging from the trees and coiling down the banks and during the whale hunt Gabriel says The water bounced us like babes on mother's knee. Kate, Tasmania's landscape is a very distinctive one. How does your landscape inform your writing? I think it comes from a love of the landscape. One of the things I really love about Tassie is how diverse it is in a a compact setting. So you can drive four and a half hours from where I am now and be in the rainforest, or you can drive a couple of hours and be on white sand beaches. And I grew up mostly in the Huon Valley, which is very rural. Um, We've got a mountain here called Sleeping Beauty, which is the profile of of Sleeping Beauty. And sometimes she's covered in snow. Um, In Hobart, Mount Wellington is just called the mountain. And often the mood of the mountain sort of dictates the mood of the city. You know, there's snow on the mountain or we can't see the mountain. Um, And I also grew up partly on the West Coast, which is very, very wild, Um, you know, beaches that would suck you out to see um, dense rainforest and so on. Which Tasmanian writers do you love to read? I really like Bobby Arnott, um, who wrote Flames, and he's just recently released The Rain Heron, um, which I'm excited about. Um, Aaron Hortles, The Octopus and I. Um, I love Heather Rose, Rowan Wilson as well. I think in all these books you can sense a real engagement with um, the natural landscape, like in your previous question. Just one question before we move away from the book and talk about a few other things. I was curious about the presence of Tasmania's First Nations people in your novel. Yeah, this is something that I thought really deeply about, Emily, as I should. Um, It's set, as you know, in 1842, which is about 10 years of after um, the end of what's known as the Black War and the violence of this, you know, despite the resistance of the First Nations Tasmanians, combined with the introduction of European illnesses, caused just almost unspeakable devastation for um, their communities. 
So the factors that I was thinking about with respect to this in my book were firstly that my book is kind of light and comic in tone and obviously I don't want to trivialise or tokenise the reality and also that it's filtered exclusively through the perception of Gabriel who as we've discussed is silly and confused and lost. So what I ended up doing I think is imperfect and I'm still thinking about you know, how I could have approached it, other ways to do it. But what I did was have other characters at several points through the novel allude to this reality, either directly to Gabriel or in his hearing. And he doesn't understand, he doesn't have the context, but my hope is that the readers will. Hmm. Kate, congratulations on winning the Vogel Award. As part of the terms of the award, I understand that you have to keep your win and publishing deal confidential for several months leading up to the public announcement. Tell us, what was that like? Was that difficult? It was weird, Emily. It was so weird. Um, You know, this Sydney publisher wrote to me asking me to meet and I told myself this little story about how I hadn't won. You know, she was maybe down for the Hobart Writers' Festival and wanted to very kindly give me a little mentoring session or something and she produced this confidentiality agreement and I I think my hand started to shake and so I sort of signed it and from that point um, I was able to tell my husband of course it would have been impossible to keep it from him because there was a lot of work to do Um, and we've got our little two-year-old so he needed to help me Um, but I think I just sort of tried to pretend it wasn't real Um, so I tried not to talk too much about my writing at all um, I really, I mean, no one does, but I really don't like lying, especially to people I care about. So I, I didn't ask anyone else for help looking after my daughter while I worked because I would have had to make something up. Um, and I just tried to be as vague as possible whenever anyone asked me about what I was writing. And to also have to hold on to all of that excitement and not be able to, to share that with, you know, your close friends and your loved ones must have been hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think almost I spent all the excitement in that time and now it's just a relief. (laughs) Thank God I could talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, gosh. The publishing process for the Vogel winners is fast-tracked. You almost doubled the word count in just a few months, I believe. I think that's what you told me. Yeah. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, um, it was pretty intense, as you can imagine. Um, But it was also great, partly because I had all this backstory. So most of what I I filled in was his reflections of what was going on back home. Um, And I just hadn't had time to get it in there. So this really gave me the liberty to fully expand the book. Because I think without that, Gabriel's motivations would have been hard to gauge, I think. You know, who is this guy and why doesn't he care about what's going on in front of him? Mm, absolutely and you know some of that backstory becomes kind of the heart of the book in a way yeah yeah thanks and I think that's that's the stuff that I care most about as well and that's the material that is more closely related to um, that older manuscript that I earlier mentioned yeah you decided to go with the pen name K.M. Cromink as a little nod to your mother and grandmother both of whom share your middle name. Tell me about their influence on you and your writing. 
Well, I have to say, if I did intentionally choose it for that reason, it was subconscious. I actually think it might have been cowardice. Just, <laughs> oh, this is slightly more anonymous than calling myself Kate. Um, my husband kind of pointed out that connection. I thought, yeah, that's great. Let's go with that. That's the reason why. Um, so my my mother and grandmother, my, my grandmother was called Margaret and my mother's middle name was Margaret. And I've actually given that name to my daughter as well as a middle name. Um, they have both passed away. Um, and my grandmother in particular was very literary. She was incredibly clever. She was accepted into uni at the age of 15. Um, you know, this is a long time ago when many women didn't go at all. Um, and so she would always have some interesting passage to read me when I went to visit her. We were very close and we really bonded over books. And mum always read to me um, and my brothers, you know, good children's books like The Hobbit. Um, and she was a teacher, so she read very well. And they both, as one of my aunties said, would just have been doing triple backflips over <laughs> over the Vogel in the book. So they're very present with me, um, and I actually dedicated the book to them as well. Oh, it's such a gift to be read to as a child, I think, especially by someone who is well-practised in the art of reading aloud. That must have been really lovely for you and your siblings. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were three of us, my brothers and me. Um, she read very well. She would do all the songs in The Hobbit. Um, and a lot of the books were from her childhood, actually, which I think now in hindsight helps me empathise a bit with a bit of what she was up against, because some of those books really present a very idealised world of, of what she should have been of little girlhood. Um, and she felt that she wasn't that as no one is um in you know Enid Blyton and so on all sounds incredibly tedious very very good in inverted commas you know um so it kind of helps me understand her better now when I kind of think back on on some of those things that she really held dear do you see yourself reading those same books to your daughter no Enid Blyton <laughs> yes the hobbit <laughs> Um, and The Secret Garden was one that, that we loved together as well. Yeah, definitely. But there have been a lot of great books since, so hopefully I'll, um, I'll be able to share a, a bit of diversity with my daughter. You mentioned earlier that this novel began with a different story, which was the story of Marianne McGinn, and you diverged with the story of Gabriel Fox. Do you think you'll be returning to that story in the future? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've gone a little while without writing. Um, I think I needed a bit of a rest after after the editing process. But just lately, I've been getting a bit excited about it again. Um, so I'm looking back at that manuscript. Um, and there's a lot in there that I like about it, I think. Um, I'm also working on something set in the modern day. But I think this one of Marianne McGinn is the thing that makes sense for me to, to continue with now, to see what happens with that. Well, we very much look forward to seeing what comes of it, Kate. Congratulations once again on your big win and thank you for speaking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your time. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.